Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. So today I've got Eyal Herzog of Bancor and also uh, DWeb, uh, one of his more recent projects. Bancor is described as a smart crypto wallet, decentralized, simple and secure, and it's really been tackling the problem of illiquidity in this long tail of, of digital asset. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, a kind of a high level summary of Bancor, which has been around since 2000 and uh, 12 now. Is that right? Mm-hmm. We've been thinking about those those things, things uh, uh, since 2012, and uh, we started to design Bancor on Ethereum in 2016 and released it 2017. Yes. Got you. And uh, you described it as solving a very particular problem, this problem around um, illiquidity. Uh, obviously, this is to a degree, still a still a problem now. But obviously, when you first began this initiative, I think you had the kind of foresight to see that in a world where we could live with thousands, tens of thousands uh, of different digital assets, that there would be this kind of long tail, um, and therefore there would be a lack of liquidity for them to kind of function properly at a, at a market level. Um, how how do you describe? Bancor, what is the problem statement? I imagine it's a, a slightly evolving thing, but what, what's the current framing of, of Bancor? I would, I would love to agree with you that I was so visionary and I saw the future need for liquidity, but uh, unfortunately, the reality is uh, less uh, glamorous than that. The reality is that I, I, we hit a wall. We literally hit a wall when uh, uh, I, I saw Bitcoin in 2011 got completely all in so you know uh, so excited about it about the potential and in 2012 we thought you know maybe we should we should allow anyone to create a token and 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 real users to kind of use that tokens and we thought about it in the context of local currencies and community currencies and that's what we did and it was uh, initially very very successful uh, we created communities that generated their own tokens and created marketplaces and exchanged tons of goods and services in, to the extent of, you know, community of 10,000 moms extending, you know, making thousand transactions every day, buying like uh, stuff from each other. So it was very, very successful. But at some point, especially when we had multiple communities and uh, we, we, we started to see the need for liquidity uh, for those user-generated tokens. So when, when I'm saying liquidity, I'm actually meaning that the, the, the most important, I would say, challenge for new tokens is price discovery. That's part of the liquidity process. You know, uh, providing liquidity without price discovery is easy, it's pegging, right? So the price discovery is, is, the, is the tricky bit in, in, this, um, in this. So how do you discover a price of, 
of a community currency or another. And the answer for price discovery has always been an order book. You have an exchange, you have an order book, people are, and then you have last trade. You look at the last trade, you see the uh, price of the uh, asset, and that's the price discovery. The only problem with this method is that it requires, you know, a, a lot of trading to happen in order for this uh, price discovery to work. So you need uh, to be listed on an exchange, and you need some, I don't know, market makers or people to really be engaged in, in trading it. And then you, you can say, oh, I have liquidity, I have price discovery. This is, and that's obviously not an option for local currencies. So we needed to find a different solution. We had no choice. We had to find a different solution. And we did a lot of kind of thinking and experiments and trials. I, you know, I can talk for 10 hours about that, but <laughs> I won't. But we ended up in 2016 after being inspired by what smart contract can do. Because it's the first time that I kind of really, I would say, uh, dived into this whole uh, world of smart contracts and the potential. It was 2016. And based on that, we were able to design a solution that will always allow you to convert one asset to another, even if there's no counterparty. And that was the big breakthrough of Bancor. Because before that, you always needed a counterparty in order to buy an asset or sell an asset. And with Bancor, we were able to design a system where the counterparty is a smart contract. So it's only in you that is needed. And in order to do that, we had to build, a, to design the Bancor formula that would make sure that whenever you're buying an asset, the price of the asset will go up. When you're selling it, it will go down. But it has nothing to do with the existence of, of the counterparty when you buy it. Now, if you think about it, it's almost making price discovery asynchronous. You can think about it in the context of, of a real estate uh, asset. And uh, how do you make that liquid? So, you know, obviously, if you want to sell your 10% in some house in London, then it might be challenging to find a buyer uh, when you want to sell it. But if you're using asynchronous liquidity, like in Bancor, then you're just going to sell it to a smart contract that is going to reduce the price of that token. So maybe in order to get your cash now, you actually sold it for three or 5% below the market price, maybe even 10% because you really needed the money. You know, my father is in real estate, so I know when people really want to sell, they will, you know, cut even 50% of the price if they need cash now because it's an illiquid market. But let's say you're selling to the, to the liquidity pool, the bank or liquidity pool, and what happens is that the price is reduced and that creates an opportunity for someone else to buy it, but not in the same time. So you just create an opportunity for, for that, that lasts for a long time. And that's kind of how it works differently and why it solves the problem. And so this is what you call this kind of formulaic price calculation and this continuous liquidity. And, and that aggregates into something you call smart tokens, right? That's kind of the way you describe the innovation. So, you know, smart tokens is a generic name for tokens that are able to hold other tokens, to own other tokens, which is a concept that I never thought about before I got into bank, Banco, where we kind of needed something like that. We needed a token 
to own another token to provide liquidity for that master token. And that's just one of the mod models that you can uh, use with, with Bancor. But but smart token is, is really a generic name for that. And uh, and and you today people use the term liquidity pool for what we are uh, what we have introduced in 2017. Mostly the term liquidity pool. I can tell you today because now it doesn't matter that we wanted to use those terms. But back in 2017, the lawyers told us don't use those terms. It's like those are dangerous words. But it's like what. We believe them, but uh, today uh, everyone is using that, that term. They were worried that it sounds too much like, I don't know, uh, too much uh, of regulated terms of something like that. Um, but but that, that is how it's called today, liquidity pools, mostly. So one of the reasons why um, I wanted you on specifically as a founder um, is because, you know, you describe yourself as a product architect. You know, you're very much focused on product and you have a few decades of startups focused on products, in particular kind of consumer products. Um, and so, you know, I think it's you've always described it. It's quite funny that you've ended up working on something that was based almost like a financial infrastructure because that wasn't necessarily your interest. It was just you had to solve a, a problem that you came upon. And when you're talking about... Um, a lot of the innovations that you've come up with there, that was as a consequence of an, a project, a precursor to Bancor in a way, which was which was AppCoin, which you did in in two thousand and twelve, right? Mm -hmm. So that's when I kind of got those those numbers mixed up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so um, if I kind of look at your, uh, your your background and kind of what led up to to AppCoin, and it'd be interesting to under, understand, you know, what what set you out on that journey. As I understand it. You're Israeli, born and raised in Tel Aviv, as is, I guess, uh, almost con conventional now. You uh, worked in, in the military in Unit 8200. Do you say it that way or 8200? Eight, 8, yeah. yeah, 8200. They usually say 8200. 8200, okay. From there, you ended up founding a number of or co-founding a number of different startups. Um, one was a, a social network in 1998, contact.com. Um, you had huge success with something called Meta Cafe uh, in 2003, which was a, a user-generated video sharing site, I believe at, at one point bigger than YouTube. Yeah, in the beginning it was bigger than YouTube, but then YouTube kind of exploded. It was, it was second to YouTube in the, what is unfortunately a winner-takes-it-all winner market. Yes. And so I think when I've researched you, that the, the two things that come out as lessons I guess that, that become apparent in how it's informed the next things that you've done is one is this winner takes all piece and um, also the power of long tail uh, and I guess that's as a consequence if you look at video production user generated content um, this this concept that uh, you have a long tail of content that is equivalent in size to um, you know a handful of larger content creators I, I would say I would say that would be good if it was equivalent but but we found out that the long tail, uh, compared to the greatest hits, so let's say you take all the videos that are absolutely the greatest hits right now, let's say this month uh, on, on the internet, the new most amazing videos, and you take the long tail, the long tail is probably 99.9% .9 of the traffic. That's the crazy thing. 
that the greatest hits on video is literally nothing. It's, it's, it's so small. Look at Reddit videos. That's the greatest hits. Look how many views they have there. It's nothing. We're talking about billions and billions of videos that are viewed every day, and the greatest hits are just you know, speck in the water. And so that, that kind of um, working within a long tail uh, with, with Meta Cafe, um, the, the kind of next startups, it's almost like a theme that carries through there um, with, with AppCoin. Um, as I said, a kind of precursor to Bancor in a way, which was around uh, user-generated private currencies. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe that that led to about 10,000 transactions a day at, at its peak. Um, so what, what was it, uh, what is the theme that's kind of continued through MetaCafe, through to, to AppCoin and, and now Bancor? You know, with MetaCafe, um, I was first kind of introduced to the world of um, you know, user-generated media in, in, in general. It can be audio, video, text, but, you know, obviously video is, is, is a huge category in that. And, and that was actually a big miss for me because I was working on the assumption that you know, we're gonna have those amazing videos that people are gonna create, and we want a platform for that. And if you remember, I don't know, a long time ago, 2001, 2002, there was a big phenomena of videos that were sent from person to person via email. That was a big deal. And that has been uh, quite an inspiration for me because. You know, I was getting all these videos and I said, you know, the email is not the right platform for to do that. Not at all. And and with Metacafe, a lot of those kind of, um, I would say, impression uh, lingered because I thought, you know, let's get the, the a platform, let's build a platform where people can post their, their content and we will find the best one and we will show it. It was, again, much more like Reddit than it is like YouTube that we're building essentially a Flickr for video. Just host your video and then you can embed them and search them. And we were building a destination site that would actually bring up the best stuff. Now that strategy failed miserably because again, I learned uh, that was around 2008 eight or nine, I don't remember exactly. I learned about the long tail, about that concept that I did not appreciate before that. Uh, it was not even, that, that, that concept was not even conceived when we just created the MetaCafe. So, so through this understanding, I, I realized that I actually, you know, I, I really may, may have gone to the wrong strategic direction with MetaCafe. Uh, because I missed the understanding of what the long term really means. And I thought it was a beautiful concept because it really shows you that if you remove the barriers on distribution and publishing, then you can see the beautiful variety of, of you know, our culture. Uh, and, and you can see that many, many people have very different interests and people are actually more engaged as, as their interest is more niche. They, 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 they get more engaged. So, so uh, I learned about that and I didn't want to make that mistake again, <laughs> obviously. And, and when I first saw uh, Bitcoin 2011, I thought to myself, oh my God, you know, this is just the currency. Someone created it. We don't even know who, 
and everyone's using it. And here there's also Litecoin, there's Namecoin, and oh my God, there might be a long tail here as well. And we said that in you know 20, 2012, that this this going to be a multi-token world. And that was long before you know everyone issued the to- their own token. And 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 that's kind of um that was I think the inspiration to to create a app coin to say, you know, let's create a system where it will be really, really easy to issue a token, to issue your own coin, to use it and see how people interact with it. It was so new. Everyone and people didn't even think about the concept of using non-national currencies at that time. This is 2012. And and uh, and that was kind of the the vision that that the app coin started with and at one point we realized that it's not going to be so helpful if you're going to let anyone create a token if that token is not liquid because if it's not liquid it's like it's like creating a local network that is disconnected from the internet it yeah it can be useful you can transfer in your office all kind of stuff you can email internally you can calendar internally. That's, that's nice. But how much better the network gets when you just connect it to all the other networks in the world? That is so more efficient. And that the same thing goes with currency. If you have a local currency, then it can only buy some local products. But if it has liquidity, then it's, it's money. Then you can buy anything with it. And, and and that was a big realization that kind of drove us to create Bankcoin. And so AppCoin was actually created with the same co-founders, Gallia and Guy um, of Bankor. Would Was Bankor an evolution of AppCoin or was it a kind of a separate project, a distinctly separate project that was solving for the problem that you discovered with, with AppCoin? Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was in the... the the same, uh, the same founders, the same teams, but it was a completely a new project. Uh, we built it from scratch on Ethereum. You know, in, in, as a general rule, you want to build your system. Uh, you know, you want to rewrite them after three or four years. Um, but we started from scratch and we built it on Ethereum. There was no Ethereum in 2012 when we started Upcoin. But all of a sudden, there's this blockchain. Obviously, we noticed that in 2014, that there is a blockchain that actually has built-in support for uh, you know, creating tokens. It was the first blockchain that you know you go to the homepage of Ethereum.org and hey, create your own your, your own token. This is how you do that. So we felt like the world is moving toward us, and and that's why we uh, we we chose to build on Ethereum. And we build it completely from scratch. And, you know, I think one of the big challenges when you speak to founders in this space, especially those um, that have been, you know, trying to build businesses or scalable solutions um, over the time period that you're discussing, you know, from the early days of Ethereum is, you know, often they feel this challenge of being at the very edge of a market is you're building on a on an evolving stack. So, as you say, you know, you, you work with what's available at that time, um, but very quickly new things pop up. You know, how, how do you how do you navigate that as a founder when you're trying to execute on a particular thing, 
but you have this reliance upon an underlying stack that you can't necessarily control. So, you know, this is, I, I think this is one of the toughest problems that I had to deal with because, you know, I do have a tendency to get excited about things prematurely. I, I know that. Um, and, and that's a problem. That's a real problem. You know, people tell me, oh, yeah, you see the future. I mean, fuck that. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you could swear. You could, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you could swear. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I, I've, I've always been seven years too, too early. That's, that's too long. I mean, I, I'm seven years, I'm saying, because I created a social network in, 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 in 98, and even you know most people don't know it that that we we, we created I created a company for user generated core uh, user generated content in '99. Its name was Elol E L O L dot com. It was also uh, you know in the dot com kind of crazy era. So those two concepts that I got super excited about in 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 1998 they really matured about seven years later. Um, after uh, I got excited about them, and maybe you should the, maybe you should set a, a calendar. So every time you have a new idea, set a calendar uh, reminder in seven years' time. Oh, yeah, you, that's you a might... good idea. But the problem is that I'm so excited about it. It's almost like I can't help myself by going building. You know, when I saw Bitcoin, I didn't care about the infrastructure. That it's just, oh my God, this is going to change everything nothing's going to be the same. I mean, the only time I got the reaction that I had when I saw Bitcoin is when I discovered about the internet, which was 93 or, or 04, I don't remember. But that's the only time that I had this reaction of, oh my God, that's going to change everything. And I, I just didn't have a choice but to kind of build something on that. And I'm actually happy that I did because, because uh, you know, you learn from all that. But the... The difficult thing is to let go. The difficult thing is to say, okay, I, you know, put my best years and my best time into that. X, obviously, that was too early. And we didn't use the most optimized technology. There's so much more now stacks that you can use. It's time for a rewrite. And that's the hardest decision in the world because you're so uh, connected. You're so attached to what you've built and you're so proud of it uh, sometimes, you know, <laughs> but, but you, it's very hard to let go. And, and, and what I discovered is that, again, if, you, if you're running with something for two years and it's not being, it's not exploding, okay? If it's not, the market is maturing, you're making progress, everything is okay, but it's not exploding, that might be a very smart choice to kind of say, you know what? Let's think of, think about it, right? Don't, don't even do that. Think about it, theorize it. Given all you know, everything that you learn, all the technologies, all the stacks, all the infrastructures that exist now that did not exist three or four years ago, how would you build it? And that uh, just exercise, this thought exercise, for me, was was really, really um, revealing uh, because because I realized that I, you know, I didn't want to think about building it from scratch. And when I did go ahead and think about it, 
then I discovered, oh my God, we can build something so much better, so much simpler with all our experience, with avoiding all the, 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 the walls that we ran into. So that is, that is how I, I kind of deal with those situations. You just need to consider rewrite after a while. But it doesn't take away your learnings and your understanding and the wiring that has been established in your brain throughout this period. I mean, if I would not think about conversions between tokens and rates and reserves and, and, and research those, those mechanisms, you know, I, I researched the original Bancor, the Bancor Keynesian idea. I was re- researching that during the AppCon days. To realize how he connected, you know, how he proposed to uh, connect different national currencies to each other. So, so all that is 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 with you, and and that's kind of the important thing, I I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because clearly there are so many, you know, you, you're a smart guy. That there's so much to get distracted on, um, mm. and it's difficult to determine whether it is a healthy distraction, whether it's going to lead to um, uh, a new breakthrough innovation, or whether it's kind of kind of take your eye off off a particular um, roadmap, and I I certainly see it in um, the startups that we invest in, who are you know very early pre seed seed. There's so much potential in front of them. It is really difficult for them to kind of focus on 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 product and execution rather than going down intellectual rabbit holes yeah um and i I think this is this is really why i wanted you on the show because i know as a product guy who's who's had to solve very complex problems um there's there's that kind of tension there so if we look at bancor i I don't know how you would kind of measure it its success now but i think you know most people would regard that it is it is it is serving the need in the market that existed. How do you kind of quantify its measure its success at the moment? So, in terms of uh, adopting the Banco formula and the um, liquidity pools that first were introduced in our white papers, uh, and the whole idea of liquidity network, um, that has been great. This is, you know, that this is one of the pillars of decentralized finance. It was adopted in many other blockchain. It is used on EOS for RAM, RAM pricing and trading. And the concept just took off a life of its own, which is amazing. Bancor specifically is a liquidity network that uh, is essentially a cross blockchain uh, in, 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 its, in its design. This is why uh, it's not relying on a specific blockchain token, uh, but but on the liquidity networks token as kind of the base liquidity token, in that we are different than a Uniswap, for example, that are just using Ether. Now, today we are in a situation where most of the DeFi activity is still just on Ethereum. Um, I did not think that it will remain this way. I actually believe that it will happen sooner that we will see more projects um, happening on other blockchain and succeeding. But that that is taking a little longer than I thought, but I definitely see it happening, especially now. Uh, and I think that as the world moves more and more into kind of cross blockchain 
decentralized finance, you know, that that would actually be great for Banco because it is the first liquidity network that that allowed conversion between tokens on EOS and tokens on Ether and vice versa. So I think, you know, it, as, as for Banco liquidity network, it has a lot of room for growth, especially now that we are, by the way, releasing Banco version two, that solves a lot of the still existing issues with liquidity networks, specifically from the liquidity provider side, stuff like impermanent loss and, and, and the low usage of capital in, in those liquidity pools. We were able to come up with a model that solved them. We actually announced it like yesterday, it's a, in collaboration with Chainlink. And I think that, you know, Bancor will shine more and more as we will see more uh, activity that is no lock, not not just local on Ethereum, but across uh, across multiple uh, blockchains that can offer different advantages. Right, and so you know you have a, a new initiative called DWEP, and uh, as I understand it, really this builds upon some of the work that you've done at Bancor, and I know you referenced how Bancor kind of new innovations to happen. So the, the way that I understand DWeb is that you are creating a, a royalty distribution engine, as you call it, which allows for uh, an ecosystem of uh, developers, um, DevOps, uh, and other stakeholders to be able to collectively deliver a truly decentralized web service that could be an application, it could be an improved form of email where you can remove spam. Um, how, how does, you know, what, what led to the insight of DWeb and how does it kind of build on the work that you've been doing at, at Bancor? Interesting that you mentioned email because, you know, most people don't think about it, that there's only one online service that is decentralized. Everything else is, is fully centralized and own and proprietary and usually a monopoly. <laughs> There's only one single service that is fully decentralized and it's the most popular one of them all. We all use it. It's called email. And, and you know, it's, 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 it's worthwhile to give some thought. Wait a minute, how, why is there only one? Why, why is it only one? And, uh, and, and if, you know, if uh, some of the listeners were uh, using the internet early enough, uh, they might remember that it used to be all decentralized. They might remember uh, Usenet news groups that were decentralized discussion groups that obviously it's happening today on Reddit and Facebook groups in a fully proprietary owned uh, and monopolized way. Uh, if you look at um, IRC, that was, I, I was using IRC a lot. IRC is a decentralized instant messaging, both person-to-person -person and group instant messaging that were become popular only with WhatsApp many years later. IRC had all that, all of it. And I was using it and it was working beautifully and it's gone. The, the, both of those services are gone and, and email somehow survives. And it's a very interesting question, why? Uh, and I think that they just didn't have the, uh, the right technology. They were, we didn't have a, a sophisticated enough or advanced enough 
network technology to allow what blockchain technology allows today. And blockchain technology, if you know, if after nine years of being obsessed with blockchain, I think there are three advantages, and each one is based on the last one. The number one advantage or utility or benefit of blockchain, I think you can classify as benefit. The number one benefit, the most important thing, is that it's a global digital ledger that anyone can read from and everyone can, 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 can write to, and it's public. We never had that on the internet. You never had a public ledger with, you know, it's essentially a list of signed digital transactions that everyone can read and, and you can also write. You know, it might cost you some coin or whatever, but that, that's beside the point. The fact that it's possible. You know, if we had that, when the time that we created email and, and news groups and IR, IRC, you would have a very different internet today. Very different. For example, even the, the email itself, you wouldn't have to deal with spam. Why don't we have to deal with spam on, on Facebook and WhatsApp? And, you know, I almost never see spam on those places. Why? Because they do have a centralized data store that they use in, 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 in Facebook and WhatsApp. And if someone is spamming the system, they can remove all the messages from the inboxes. You couldn't do that with email. It was way, way too complicated to do it without the single source of, of truth. Not to mention that this is just part of the problem. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's the, 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 the first benefit. The second benefit is that it allows to, for people, for services, for decentralized services, to send not just information to each other, because you know, email servers send information to each other, news group servers send information, and RLC servers send a lot of data to each other. But with blockchain, they can send money to each other. They can send value. They couldn't do that back then. They had to deal with the network. That's the only thing you can transfer between you know, in a decentralized network is data. That's the only thing that works. Now it's not. Thanks to the ability to create those public ledgers, you can have tokens run and, and currencies and stable coins, what have you, running on those ledgers. And all of a sudden, the internet becomes a medium that can transfer not just information, but also value, also digital assets. Uh, now, just, and, so just on that, what, to what extent, because I know, again, as a, as a product guy, you're always talking about removing friction. Mm -hmm. And so to what extent, on the one hand, you know, with AppCoin and, and the idea that anybody could have a, a token, um, to now, to what extent has your thinking around tokens evolved? How much do you think this tokens need to be invisible do you need are they should the end user be aware of them actively using them or should to what extent should these technologies and tokenization be invisible or at least the complexity abstracted away so you know i i, I truly think that let's say we had that on the internet we had blockchain and, and those services could send value to each other i believe that most of the value that you would have seen being sent between services would be stable coins. And the reason is, and I think this is something that a lot of people in, in our space misses, they don't get the difference between a speculative asset and a stable coin. And this is the kind of the local terms that we use, but, but 
you know, one that has a price that is uh, kind of fixed over short periods of time, obviously over decades and century can change. But I'm saying, you know, the cost of one hour of unskilled labor in dollar almost doesn't change at all, you know. You know, over the course of few years, it's literally the same cost, and 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 money is, by the end of the day, it, it is kind of a, you know an encapsulated labor if you if you want to look at it this way, uh, then 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 that's totally stable with with the the value that 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 it has is stable. On the other hand, you have speculative assets, and speculative assets is like shares, right? And their value is, and they're just for completely different thing. And even though they both use the same mechanism, there's could be two things that are more different in in their usage because people use speculative assets in order to predict the future, while people use stable coins or money in order to collaborate with each other. There's really nothing to do with each other. You know, collaboration has nothing to do with prediction predicting the future. And 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 based on that prediction of the future, provide you know provide financing or whatever. It has nothing to do with you know I'm going to the store and I buy bread and I'm buying the labor of the person that actually baked this bread and and brought it to the store. When I buy a share or even a Bitcoin, I'm speculating that that this thing is going to grow and the demand will grow and 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 I might lose or or or, or win. Doesn't so matter. So would you say that the I mean, if, if, so you, if you separate those two things, um, would you say that you, on the one hand, you have something like AppCoin, which was this idea that anybody could issue a token for anything, presumably with a speculative component to it. And then you have something like Bancor. I mean, if you if you go back to, as you said, the, the, the original The Bancor, um, which was this intended to be this supranational currency, um, conceptualized um, uh, around World War II, um, I think directly translates as uh, bank gold in, in, in French. So hmm. clearly that is supposed to be stable. So uh, with Bancor, was it more around this kind of separation of stability of, of price? And then something like AppCoin was more around the ability to create a digital equity. With, with you know without coin we didn't have any notion of price because we didn't have any any, any liquidity mechanism in place that can support those assets so uh, in, in fact what happened with AppCoin is that the communities that were using the solution would generate their own token and they would say something like let's imagine that this token worth one shekel which is the israeli national currency so so one token is one shekel and they they kind of worked on that assumption when they traded a lot of local currencies are like using the same i would say um method um and and and, and really I, I think that in local currencies that shouldn't be specul uh, speculative in local currency that is usually uh, you know something that that that, that represents labor however labor is not always the same and you can see that between countries so even though Israel has a stable coin called a shekel and U.S. has a stable coin called the dollar, there is price differences between them. And the price differences are usually a result of the respective economies. So if people in the United States are making amazing things that everyone in the world wants, then people will need their currency and you will see the value of the dollar going up relative to other world currencies. Uh, but 
but that does not mean that they are not stable coins because each one in its respective uh, geography is stable and the cost of labor unless obviously if it's Venezuela and the currency fails completely or cases like that but in in, in normal uh, situation then you have different tokens but different currencies by different countries but but still price differences between them and that was kind of the how we we, we looked at it in appcoin but with bancor all of a sudden you have assets that are completely speculative that are like you know the internet stocks of 99 right that who knows how big this thing is going to be and what's going to be the part of this group or this team and this new future that is being built this is not about labor this is not about exchange of value to to, to collaborate this is about speculating and by the way when when people the easiest way to see if if, it, if if a currency or a token is for speculation or for circulation just look at what people do if people buy and sell it it's a speculative asset if people are sending it and transferring it then it's a then it's money then it's yeah. something that is used for uh collaboration and and i think that you know, in AppCoin, we had tokens that were used for collaboration because that's what you do with local currencies. But with Bancor, it was, you know, we served tokens that were mostly speculative in uh, in their nature. And, and you know, we helped with their price discovery. Right. So then if we look at D-Web um, on that kind of continuum, we have, as I understand it, an attempt to remove friction that comes from having um this kind of speculative layer in order that people can presumably build services web services decentralized services that that allow people to participate and presumably remove some of the complexity volatility and, and stuff to operate as a business is that a yeah, I, I, I think I think this is a, an excellent, you know, an, an, an excellent way to describe it because, and, and to be honest, I never talked about this aspect of it before, but I think you're right on here that, you know, it used to be the case that in order to have any model, any financing model, any um, any way to bootstrap a, a, a Web3 a company was, you know, Create your own token, sell your token, find a way for to use that token in your system. And that kind of been the only way to raise capital even in this market uh, you know, uh, in, 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 in a native form. And D-Web is essentially offering a different way, a very, very different way. With D-Web, it can all work with stable coins. So if, if the only tokens in the world is, is a stable token, uh, or you know, a bunch of stable tokens, so maybe you don't want to put your eggs in one, one basket. That's fine. It works perfectly because DWeb is not about the need to create a token that its value appreciate when the network grows. It's not about that. DWeb is about creating applications that end user want to use. And I, I think, first of all, that's that's the core of DWeb. It's dead simple to build on DWeb. You actually build your application on Google Firebase, uh, not. Not everyone knows Google Firebase, but it's like the simplest way to build an app. You don't need to think about blockchain and you just use the D-Web framework. It takes care of, of all the, the, the nasty stuff for you. But when you use the framework and you build your service, the way that it is different 
is that you don't need to be hosting the service and you don't need to be marketing the service. So those are two key key things that, that are the difference. Uh, the first thing is that you don't need to host it because you can just take your code or binaries or whatever you prefer, put them on some GitHub, and, and, and from that point, anyone in the world can become an operator of your service. So let's say, let's talk about the service that we're building in, in D-Web, kind of the first service that we build on the, uh, on, on the framework, which is, not surprisingly, a discussion group. Why a discussion group? Because that is the first big, large category that failed to establish itself as decentralized. Email succeeded, but discussion group failed. And now we have this you know, monopoly, platform monopolies that is running those things. And we, we know all the problems that are experienced through that model. So with discussion groups, I build a software, great discussion board, and, and anyone can, and, and, and now anyone can become an, an operator of that discussion group and essentially take my software, put it on their instance of Google Firebase or servers or whatever, and they're running it. Now, usually in the old internet, if you would do that, you will get many small, disconnected, walled garden of services. And with D-Web, every... Um, action that is every event is being registered on the blockchain so all the operators they can all write to the same blockchain but they can all read everything that everyone else is writing so they essentially have access to the same data set to the same data store and 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 then it doesn't matter which user is using which operator infrastructure because they all see the same data on the backend and that's kind of the biggest advantage of blockchain that I think people still don't realize because there are not many examples of, of, of uh, that being being leveraged, except, you know, obviously in stuff like Bitcoin that you, you can see that everyone is using the same database of who owns how much Bitcoin on the background, but we never took it to the application level. So you made a conscious decision to choose this particular framework. Um, is that in order that you can onboard what you might class the typical web two developer into this world. What was the decisioning around, you know, picking established frameworks and in particular those um, from Google? It's as you said, but but I can tell you that we had, you know, really really uh, tough experience building decentralized services. It's not easy. There were not a lot of production decentralized system in the last three years. Uh, and we were one of the existing one that actually had to deliver and work with those blockchain and have you know tens of thousands of users, and that was very very challenging. And uh, both to build, to maintain, to keep up, it's it's hard. And we wanted to make it really simple uh, for 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 a developer, and also to take it outside of the scope of building blockchain applications that are all around DeFi and you know, tokens and stuff. I mean, look at the example. What are we building? We're building a discussion board. It has nothing to do with blockchain. But but as, as you're going to see, I think it's creating the best discussion board the world have ever seen just because it is using that technology, because it's leveraging that technology. It's like, it's like you, you might have the best mapping service in the world, but guess what? The first one that's going to create maps on mobile devices is going to create a much better app 
than you because his app is available on mo mobile devices where you need the maps and not on your personal computer. So, so by using this technology, the same application can be you know, 100 times more, more valuable to the end user. And, and we're seeing the same thing. If you just take a discussion board like we're building right now. And first of all, I love the fact that I only need to focus on building the code. I don't need to focus about operating it. I don't need to focus about censoring and policing the network and legal and all kind of GDPR. And I, I just, it's not, it's not me. It's, it, I'm building the code and, you know, everyone may operate it in different jurisdictions and, and kind of deal with whatever they want to deal there. But, but for me, it, it really simplifies my, my, my work. And the re what makes it even possible is not just the fact that all the operators that are running my software, they can see the same data um, thanks to blockchain, but that's not enough because I need to be compensated somehow. And this is where blockchain really shines because all of a sudden I can say, you know what? Let's say that whatever someone generates a revenue on this discussion board, let's say you promote a post. So you buy, there's the process, you promote a post, you pay something, and, 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 and the service just generated an income of $1. In the code of the software that I build, where the revenue is generated, there is, there is code that says that 10% of whatever is generated through the system is being sent to me, the developer, by the royalty distribution engine that you mentioned earlier. So I'm not selling the software. I'm not renting it, I'm not anything. I'm giving it, everyone can operate it, but in the code of the software, there's code that will send me money whenever the software is generating revenue. And that is something that was not possible before. Now, the funny thing is that the operator does the same thing. The operator that runs the service, the servers also specify, you know what, I want 10% of the income that is generated by this online service, uh, but, but, but he will get it obviously only for the activity that was generated on the specific operator servers and infrastructure. And, and, and at that point, anyone can become what we like to call a marketer. Now, a marketer doesn't need to build software and it doesn't need even to have servers. A marketer just needs to own a domain. If you have a domain, you can become a marketer. And, and, and as a marketer, you just point your domain to the operator of your choice. How do you choose an operator? Based on the quality of the service, based on the, the royalties that they demand. Maybe one wants 20%, they want 10%. You might want to make a decision there. But you choose an operator. It's an open ecosystem. And then you bring users to use the service through your domain, like email providers does. I mean, we're not even inventing something new. This is just formulating, you know, things that we used to do in a very messy way. So you bring users, they can use the service through your domain. They are your users. They actually, the username is username at your domain. They're actually your users as marketers. They're using the operator infrastructure, which is hosting the developer's software. And whenever that user is generating, again, promoting a post, what happens is that the marketer is getting a share of the revenue, the operator is getting a share, and the developer is getting a share, and they all can all 
charge as much as they want, and it's a free market, and people will use the best stuff that is priced the most reasonable way. But it makes your service operator by an ecosystem. You know, we think we build decentralized application, and that was, you know, kind of my evolution from Bancor to DWeb is that, you know, I created a service on Bancor to create your own token. And it was really cool. We called it creator.eco. It was kind of targeted on, on, on content creators, and YouTubers, stuff like that. But then I kind of noticed, hey, you know, it's really nice that everything is decentralized. But in order to use creator.eco from now to the foreseeable future, you're probably going to need to do that through creator.eco domain. I mean, everything goes to us, meaning we own the service. We run it. We take the decision of where it will go. It's ours. It's not decentralized. It's not like email. It's very, very centralized because we always thought about decentralizing the backend. And all of a sudden, you know, this is kind of what ushers DWeb in when we said, you know, a service that you access from a single domain, it's not a decentralized service. It's very much centralized. The domain can be closed tomorrow. And, you know, things, things should not be operated through a single pathway. So, so this is kind of how we, we evolved the concept that is really not about tokens. It's about a market of performance-based royalty distribution, revenue sharing. You're a great marketer, you're going to make a lot of money. You're a great uh, operator, you're going to do great. You're a great developer, people love what you build. You have a lot of operator of hosting your software, a lot of marketers offering it to your users. You're going to do great. But it's a revenue model a revenue-based model rather than a speculative-based model, which maybe the industry was not ready for back then, but it's definitely ready for today. A lot of people are making a lot, you know, do, making a lot of profit from uh, blockchain-related uh, businesses. So we think the market is ready for that. I was just going to say, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating approach, and I think, you know, for me, what's what's so interesting has always been so interesting about this space is the ability initially for tokenization to allow for more open source technology to be birthed into the world rather than um, you know proprietary technology that kind of dies lives and dies with with the health of a, any given startup so i think you know this idea that you can have ecosystems um, build not just stacks of code but then startups on top and everybody is remunerated um, through royalty revenues rather than um, you know, potentially speculative value, I think is a, is a, is a really novel approach. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, I think clearly that comes from, as I said, your, your focus as a, as a product guy, somebody that is thinking about how you can um, develop things that are usable and, and where you can remove as much friction as possible. Um, I mean, I could talk to you for hours and certainly I think DWeb is, is, is probably going to give me um, a few sleepless nights as I try to kind of wrestle with it, it, it its potential and how that plays out alongside um, the token space. So I, I want to thank you for your time today. I almost definitely want to try to get you on it at some point and, and hear about your experience uh, with DWeb. And if you have any ideas that you think might happen at some point in, in seven years' time, maybe just uh, email them over now and we can speak in six years' time. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, thank you. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.